one. Yo. There's certain things that I can talk to you about that I can't really with my dad. I don't think we should talk about this. Hello, uh, this is uh, Lynn and Jen, and we're back with uh, Let's Talk About Sex. What we're going to talk about today is really a, a part two to the election, and uh, really talked about, uh, since it was, I think, just the day or two after, some of the dismay and uh, shock and uh, horror and uh, a whole range of emotions that we had and other people had after this election. You might wonder, as the listener, why we're talking about politics instead of sex. And actually, uh, both Jen and I feel that politics uh, and sex are both part of our lives, whether we like them or not. And uh, we can choose to have an active part in our sexual life or a passive part. And we can choose to have an active part in our political life or a passive part. So we're now about 10 days from the inauguration of uh, President-to-be uh, Trump, and uh, we're really talking about what we feel and uh, what can be done really during this period of time. And uh, just to say, Jen, uh, I've talked a little bit already about this, but to give you voice, too, around this, too. Yeah, I mean, I think it's an important thing because as time passes, we we move through different phases and we have different experiences. And I'm at a different point than I was a day after, and I think that's to be expected. And that I think I'm in a place where I can feel more hopeful. I think I had to go through a feeling of kind of despair and shock and grief and it's not that I don't occasionally feel those things still when I see all the changes that are being made and the the policies that are being put forward that negatively affect a lot around sexuality, but also other things. But I think, too, that there's this message of hope and that we can do things and that together we can come together and fight and that it can be a collaborative effort. And you had talked about something called the points of light, which... <laughs> is an idea I had heard about, but I'd never heard that term. And I, I love that. Can you share that? Well, long ago, I, you know, I think points of light, the concept comes uh, really through the ages. Uh, it was written about in, in the uh, British um, book, really, Beowulf. And points of light referred to the uh, medieval, uh, was actually even earlier than medieval, but the hall, the ancient hall where individuals gathered. It was warm. It was a safe place. Uh, people could feel safe there. It had light or points of light in it. Yeah. And it's contrasted with the dragons in Beowulf and uh, reminds me, uh, it's still very applicable today, yeah. that we need to look for places where we feel light, uh, we feel strong, and we feel safe. And what's also, I think, good about points of life, it's people together making a safe space to really make a difference and to feel safe. So this brings us back to this inauguration that we're facing, which is challenging, I think, for many in this country. And you spoke to me how about uh, Bernie Sanders and how he really helped you with this process. Feel like you could go on into something like the points of life, be acting together with others to make a difference. Yeah, I mean, I think it's been reflected in a lot of our other leaders, but because he, he was one of the first ones defeated in kind of this succession of things, he brought up that his campaign was really always not just about electing him and that it wasn't over per se. 
that it was really about people and that it was about individuals coming mm -hmm. together and fighting mm -hmm. for this bigger idea and that it was really together and at a local level that we can make these big changes mm -hmm. that you know his so much of his platform was funded by small donations from these people. And it really showed that even if you felt you couldn't give that much, whether it be monetary, whether it be time, whether it be your skills, that just doing what you can does actually make a difference. And that was really powerful because one of the reasons that I kind of opted out before of politics or attempted to as we talked about you never truly kind of can opt mm -hmm. out but you know that I was more of a passive participant was because I felt like what can I really do like does it does my voice actually matter and I think that's what his whole platform has been so inspiring is that yes we we do matter as individuals and we matter not just a little bit but greatly yeah. Hillary Clinton really carried that idea yeah. onward uh, in her uh, speech, really concession speech, right. which was about how we have to go on and we have to look for areas we can work in. You know, those points of light out yeah. there where we can light up the world and really make a difference. And I think uh, for myself, it's really brought me back to grassroots efforts. You know, I've done a lot of work in the area of sexual harassment, discrimination. How can I work in that area, you know, effectively at this time and really make a difference, even with everything else we're fighting? But I think everyone out there, our listener, really has to look for the area that they can make the difference in. Yeah, and I think it starts, I think that's fantastic when you're able to kind of start a grassroots movement and, and build from that. I think it, when I talked to some of my clients that were very dismayed and, and sort of in shock and not sure what to do, there were also stories of hope. There were stories of kindness. And I think that's something everybody can start with is that you can be kind to the people around you. You know, one of my clients was sharing this story about, um, there was this, they were at a gas station or they were near a gas station and this Latino couple, their car had broken down and uh, they needed some help with some kind of lifting. I don't know the exact details of the story. And um, so my client, who is sort of an elderly white woman who could have been perceived to be a Trump supporter, even though she wasn't, um, she went up to the Latino kind of gas station attendant and said, you need to help these people. You have an ability to help these people. You need to help these people. And the attendant replied, well, why should I help them? Because, you know, um, it's, it's Trump's world now. We're all, you know, everybody for themselves. Mm -hmm. And she sort of reprimanded them and said, you know, no, it's because of this that you need to do this kind act because we need to remind people that there is kindness in this world. Mm -hmm. And I think, you know, that's just a small story, but I think it shows it's these daily little interactions that can really build into this bigger movement. Right. Um, you know, I couldn't agree with you more. And, you know, the way she was able to really pull it together at that yeah. point and express that, that we have to continue to treat people not in an unkind, mean way. Um, others are speaking out about this. You know, you see it uh, through the media a bit in Hollywood recently related to certain things. Yeah. Uh, 
But I think also our outgoing president, Barack Obama, you know, last night he really talked about how we are, we the people, and we make the democracy, and we are the people, the individuals working together to make these changes. Yeah. And uh, I thought it was the same sort of speech, really, for all of us to take into account, really, what can we do? How can we work together? And how can we stand up? really against some of these ideas that are so harmful, really, to others, but believed by many. You know, I think that's the hard thing about it. I think that is the hard thing, and it's really a message of hope. And I I don't know if, you know, it was directly related, but a couple days earlier, Michelle Obama had given a speech as well, and she was talking about how in, in such troubling times, you cannot fall to fear. You cannot let fear make your decisions. And really, you have to keep working from a place of hope, and you have to create hope, and you have to find hope. And I think that's really powerful, because essentially, that's also what Barack Obama was saying, but in his way, was it's a message of hope that it's not over, that we, the people, we can take it back, and that we can do something, and that there's still a fight. Yeah. Well, Jen, I want to thank you for talking about it. I think this is really a, a post-dated message to our, our our discussion around the time of the uh, election. And uh, I'm hopeful that we'll be able to keep talking about both political and sexual matters, you know, because I think they do go together, you know, and uh, they fit together and often there's collision and there are many sexual matters that we're really going to have to discuss in an open way. Uh, during these next four years. So thank you. Thank you. We will be speaking uh, today on November 9th, the day after our election. Hi. Yeah. Thank you, Lynn. I'm excited to talk with you today. That's great, Jen. I I wish I had as much excitement as you're able to muster today. But as I stated, uh, it's the day after our national election. And uh, you and I are going to be talking this morning about uh, a subject that we had prepared, really, the sexualization of girls uh, as uh, seen in Halloween costumes. But in many ways, uh, our national election has overshadowed that subject. So we're going to spend a, a fair amount of this podcast on discussing uh, the national election and the issues that came up around sexualization of girls and women. How are you feeling about that? I mean, I think it's like you said, it it's really overshadowed things. I think that, you know, our original topic, you know, the sexualization of girls around Halloween costumes, it still very much applies. But I think this is just such a larger scale. And the fact that Hillary lost, I think I'm still trying to absorb that. And I'm trying to, as you said, muster energy to be excited, to keep fighting, to not let my voice be taken. Well, you have a lot of youthful energy, and I think uh, this illustrates uh, one of uh, the differences between the two of us as co-hosts. And uh, I have, shall we say, older energy as a baby boomer, and you belong to a different generation. But we both really uh, care very much about the boys and girls in this country and issues related to sexuality. So I'm hopeful that this discussion is really going to be beneficial for both of us, but for everyone really listening to it. So maybe to start out and say that uh, originally um, this podcast had been 
thought of or conceptualized as being around uh, Halloween costumes. And um, I grew up as a child in the 50s wearing uh, many costumes that were not specifically uh, male or female designed. Uh, I think I shared with you that I was a black cat in northern Wisconsin and uh, a fisher woman slash fisherman and uh, a number of other what we might define as more gender neutral costumes. In recent years, uh, particularly in the United States, uh, we've seen increasing sexualization of uh, costumes and um, gender-defined costumes for boys have been more superheroes and uh, for girls, uh, they've been also some superheroes, but more uh, feminine-defined figures and, uh, you know, rock stars and uh, the costumes in even more recent years, say the past 10, have become highly sexualized, where you see parts of girls' bodies in very young children. And all of them are defined in a fairly sexual, or most of them, I should say, are defined in a fairly sexualized way. It's interesting, I travel a lot with work and pleasure and give talks and in Europe, which is now recognized Halloween, um, surprising they're following our traditions over there, the costumes are not so much like that. And they remind me much more of the homemade costumes that we saw when I was growing up. So uh, I think this is something that America is doing differently and maybe showing the way to the world. But it's important to talk about this Um uh, what's your thought, first off, about the costumes? Because you noticed this right away. Yeah, I mean, I think I brought it up because it was just so striking to me. You know, I am not that old. I'm 30 years old. And yet I've noticed that there has been this trend over the course of my life where costumes have just become so much more sexualized and particularly around kind of the options that we do have. And so before... You know, if you wanted to be something sexy, that was fine, but it wasn't like we were limited in our choices. You know, what I saw is I went to the um, costume store and it was like, you could be a chicken, but, you know, instead of being just a chicken, you had to be a sexy chicken or a sexy nurse or they even have, you know, sexy hamburger costumes. And it's just like, I really don't think hamburgers are supposed to be sexy, you know. And if you look at kind of the male side of things, what happens is that, you know, if they want to be a hamburger, they look like a hamburger. And I think that just struck me as so much a reflection of how things are in our society and the direction that a lot of it is moving in. And I think we've talked about the influence of social media before. Um, but just that extreme gendering, I feel, is even more apparent in Halloween costumes. And this brings up... Uh... Uh, I'm a parent, but I'm also a recent grandparent that uh, many uh, who are listening out there, I'm sure, are parents, and they're concerned about their children, girls and boys, and they have had the same experience you have had uh, of going to a store and noticing that the girls' costumes are very highly sexualized. After you brought this up to me, I looked at my little grandson, little James, and uh, he was wearing a costume, his first costume this year at four months, and uh, he's a pumpkin. And uh, it could be a costume for a girl or a boy, and all the little babies that are in photographs are also in pretty much gender-neutral neutral costumes. 
So the the gendering of Halloween costumes appears to start about two or three years old when the child can really walk around. So I think that's something that we've noticed, and uh, it's a concern. I, I feel good for little James that uh, he has his own little costume, but it makes me worry uh, about the little two- and three-year-old girls that are in these highly sexualized costumes. Yeah, I definitely agree, and I think that's one of the reasons I brought it up, too, is because it is a concern. While it may just seem to some people like, oh, it's a costume, you know, whatever, it's not a big deal, it really reflects a lot about how we treat women in our society and how we push girls in a certain direction. And so before we get started, I actually realized we haven't defined what we mean by sexualization. So uh, maybe just to take a moment to define what that means. And you had looked up the American Psychological Association's task force report on sexualization. We have some criticisms of that, but the definition is an important one. So why don't you go ahead and share that with our audience? Sure. So they break it down into four conditions, and really only one of them has to be present, although sometimes more than one is present. And so the way they describe it is that someone is sexualized if a person's value comes only from his or her sexual appeal or behavior to the exclusion of other characteristics. Two, a person is held to a standard that equates physical attractiveness. Maybe I'm going to just interject there a moment. Can you say something about that? Let's take a a little girl, because we're talking about the little girl's costumes here, and how would that first condition be met in a Halloween costume? I think you've already described those costumes, but why don't you go ahead and say specifically what it would mean? Well, I think it's, yeah, exactly. The fact that, you know, a girl might be forced into a costume where it's really just about, you know, she's wearing a dress and she has to be a sexy nurse or a that the idea isn't really about, you know, is she excited about this occupation? Does she have her own ideas? How does she feel? It's just the fact that she's going to look pretty and she's going to look like this sexy nurse. And that's all there is to it. And you even brought up the sexy hamburger, that you got the girl in the sexy hamburger costume. And uh, the girl may even want to wear that costume, because those are the girls' costumes. But those are the only girls' costumes in the store. They're all sexualized. So there's not really a choice for her to make about who she is. Yeah, Mm -hmm. exactly. I mean, and I think that's the idea, is, you know, if you want to be a sexy hamburger, great. But do you really have a choice about that? Or are you being robbed of it before you even realize that there are other options? And the other thing you brought up when you go to purchase a a costume, the boys' costumes are gender-defined, but they're not sexy in that way. There's no uh, attention to body parts of boys or no aggressive defining of male gender. There is, interestingly enough, I think more violence noted in the costumes, but that's you know, perhaps a different discussion. But with respect to boys' costumes, I think that's what parents should be looking at. How violent do we want our little boys to really be in their costumes? But go ahead and give the rest of the conditions. They're interesting, I think. 
Sure, before I do that, I wanted to point out to maybe to make it more clear. So an example would be of a policeman or a police boy, I guess if that's what they're called, police boy versus police girl. So a police boy would look like a policeman. He would have pants, he would have his cool badge that he likes to flash, you know, he has the full shirt. And if you look at policemen and women on the street, that is what they're wearing. Whereas the police girl would maybe have a dress and she would still have the badge. But if you look out on the street, police women don't wear dresses. And so it becomes, why is this girl wearing a dress in this situation when the idea is sort of to adopt the uniform of the person that they're admiring or the profession that they're admiring or, you know, if it's not a person or profession, whatever the costume represents. Why is it that she only has that option? Why does she not get to wear the pants as well? I can imagine taking one of my daughters there years ago and they, one of the daughters would say, I want that other costume, you know, and there there's some choice involved. But uh, again, you know, it's pushing girls in one direction and really defining early on you know, their sexual perspective. Exactly. And so, yeah, to get back to the um, conditions, the second condition is that a person is held to a standard that equates physical attractiveness, physical attractiveness as narrowly defined with being sexy. Can you think of an example of that? <laughs> I wish uh, this brings me back to the election here, Jennifer. And, you know, we said these two topics are somewhat going to overlap. But I think in our recent election, one of the things that's been so upsetting to me is really watching how narrowly physical attractiveness of girls and women is defined in the United States. So I think that's the first thing that comes to mind today. And uh, we've listened to, you know, the candidates talk about this issue. I think our whole country is really struggling with aspects of this this morning in different ways. But uh, around our Halloween costume, um, I think, again, um, the narrow definition, you've already said it, that dresses are used, tighter clothing is used, exposing body parts is used, using body parts to define gender is used. And all of these things are, are part of girls. And uh, if we look at girls and, and boys, tighter costumes put more pressure on girls regarding weight and uh, body shaping. And uh, this fits with one of the struggles that we see in our offices, we're going to talk about a little later, that the girls are really still struggling with the perception of their own bodies, and as well as how the culture perceives bodies of girls, shape, weight, height, all of those things. So the narrow definition really makes a lot of girls in our country not feel very good about their bodies. And we need uh, really a wider range of acceptance of girls' bodies and understanding of girls' bodies. Yeah, and that I think speaks to how it's so much bigger than just about the costume. The costume is one of the venues in which we can address this issue because I think it's very apparent and kind of on parade, but it really is so much bigger than just that. 
So I want to get to kind of the third thing, um, which is the third condition is that a person is sexually objectified. And what objectified means is that they're made into a thing for others' sexual use. So rather than being seen as a person that has a capacity for independent action and decision making, they are seen as only for the sexual use of others. Well, that's that's a big one, and and I think that's hard for uh, many in our culture to really understand. Um, being seen and felt to be a sexual object is really the life of many girls and women. Um, I don't think it's so obvious when you're a child, um, so a little girl, and I, I think it takes some time to really see and feel the response of that. What it feels like, I think, is that you yourself don't matter uh, who you are inside, and it's just the way you look and appear and the needs that you might fulfill uh, for boys and men. And uh, I see many, many girls in my office, you know, in the teen years who are coming to terms with this. They uh, don't know how to feel sexy inside because they're confused about those feelings and the outside feelings of how they're regarded by boys, men in the culture as being sexy. Um, so this is a very complex issue for uh, women and girls. I also think it affects boys because boys, I've had boys in my office say to me that the girl that they like doesn't fit kind of the objectified form of girl, the perfect girl. And they question that. Should I like that girl? You know, she's a, a little chubby, but I like her. She's my best friend, and she's the one that I really get excited about. But they question that. So I really think it affects everyone in the culture, this objectification of girls. And it's something that we really could look at in more depth in other podcasts, too. And I think we will because it's, as you said, it's such a complex thing that to explain it, I think you really need a lot of real world examples and you need to be able to put yourself in the shoes so that you can understand and relate to kind of the emotional experience of that because I think that's what a lot of it is, is you don't necessarily recognize right away that you're being objectified, but instead you recognize like, this doesn't feel good. I don't feel like they see me as a person. I've heard a lot of teen clients say things like, I feel like I'm a toy. I feel like what I have to say doesn't matter. I feel like they only like me because I'm pretty. Or I feel like I have to be pretty and I, you know, they don't care if I'm smart. Or maybe they don't like that I'm smart. And all these things are things that I hear and I don't think people right away jump to, oh, I'm being objectified. They just know that they don't like it and it doesn't feel good. Yeah, I think you're really describing how the girls that we work with in our offices uh, feel and what they say to us and that they really don't understand, I think, these larger issues. But uh, their experience is really very important. Around Halloween costumes, I can remember just this last Halloween, but many Halloweens in the last few years where the girls are wearing their gym shoes and their leggings and their um, pants underneath the sexualized costume. 
And you can really see that they're struggling with who are they going to be there. And, uh, you know, and they often will rip the costumes off at the end of the evening because they don't feel very good to them. So I think that's a way where you can really see some of this struggle or conflict going on with our girls around this issue. But they don't, I think, really understand it when they're children. And that's why it's so important for adults and parents to take a look at it. Yeah, and I think um, that speaks very much, too, to kind of the last condition for um, sexualization. And what that is, is that sexuality is inappropriately imposed upon a person. And that really applies to children. And as we're talking about with the Halloween costumes, right? As you said, the costumes originated as kind of a way to express yourself, a way to have fun, a way to be creative. And instead, as it gets kind of more funneled, what happens is that this sexuality is being imposed on them and they're being forced into being, having choices that sexualize themselves instead of being able to have it be more of a free expression type situation. I really agree with that. And I think that's something that just runs through our culture, that it takes away freedoms for girls and uh, also freedoms for boys. You know, we were talking about the little boys who, uh, you know, would like to be friends with different girls, but maybe the girls don't look the way they're expected to look in the culture and the boys wonder about that. So it affects really everyone. I think um, in the recent election, many men came to understand the sexualization and particularly the negative uh, uh, comments of uh, one of the candidates, Donald Trump, in terms of their own daughters. And I think it's easier uh, for many men to understand this in terms of, of daughters and put their head in, you know, put their mind in the heads of a daughter. I think it's much more difficult um, to understand how it feels to be adult women struggling with this and to have the empathy uh, for this situation and what genderization and sexualization really does to uh, women overall. Um, we were going to talk a, a little bit uh, after uh, all of this, I think, about um, the culture at large. And uh, I think the sexualization and the strong gender roles in our culture uh, point out that, uh, uh, sadly, uh, America is a sexually restrictive culture. And many times I think we watch uh, the women in the Middle East and other countries and they're wearing burqas and we wonder about that. We laugh about that and say, well, women have freedoms here. And uh, I think to keep in mind that the strong gender roles that we have the sexualization of women, and the way women are really treated within the United States points out really how restrictive the United States is. And the United States is a, you know, it's a wonderful country. I really feel that. And uh, we're lucky to live here because of the freedoms that we have. And they're so important. But I think it's important, too, that we recognize um, the role that women have in our culture and um, it is disheartening, you know, the sexualization, the diminishment of women really within the culture. And it affects women's abilities to really achieve as much as they are able to. Um, so it's uh, really important, I think, for people to be aware of that. And uh, I think a lot of people don't realize how restrictive the culture is. I agree. I mean, and I think along those lines to build on that, 
sexual sexualization of a person, often women, it's really about power and power differentials. And, you know, one of the ways that I was taught to recognize whether or not I felt that I was being sexualized in a situation was to ask myself the question, in this situation, who has the power? And so I think even if some of the other parts go over people's heads, if you can kind of go back to that question and ask yourself, who has the power in this situation, that can help you figure out whether or not you're in a situation where you're being sexualized. And I think that has a lot to do with the restrictiveness that is in our culture. We kind of promote this idea that America is so free and women are free. And we are free in the sense that we have a right to vote, which is a huge, <laughs> huge right. <laughs> At the same time, we live in a culture that does sexualize women. And that is one of the ways in which the power of women is taken away from them. That is so important, What you, that last comment, that sexualization takes power away from women. It takes strength away, and it, it really gives power in some ways to men. It's not, not an ideal power to get, you know, where you have power over someone in that aspect, and you're objectifying a group. And I think it's hard to see, you know, but it takes away the energy of girls to be objects and, uh, you know, it, in diminishing girls' energy and power, you know, by default, the power goes to the men in that situation. Um, I think that's hard to feel, you know, it's hard to know as a little girl, if you said, well, feel where the power is. I think girls are really struggling with that. They really don't know. You mentioned earlier the what we hear from the girls in therapy, and um, I think that is frightening. Um, we haven't yet seen our patients this morning. As I mentioned, it is November 9th, Election Day, but that will happen this afternoon, and I anticipate hearing a lot of struggles related to what's been brought up by our recent election. Um, many of the girls already have talked about uh, how badly they feel about the comments that Trump has made about women. Um, many of the girls, some have already texted me, feel very badly about uh, the loss of Hillary Clinton and uh, what that means for girls and women. Um, I personally believe that uh, I've seen a lot of elections in the U.S., and there are many other factors besides gender involved in our elections. And this election certainly has financial and, you know, urban uh, versus rural factors. And having grown up in a rural setting, in fact, northern Wisconsin, I can really understand this a little bit. But um, I do think it's a hard day for a lot of girls in America, you know, and I think we're going to see that in our office. And uh, I think sexualization is part of that. And there are other things. Yeah, I mean, I'm almost stunned just kind of thinking about it. But yeah, definitely. That is what I anticipate with my clients, both girls and boys, because this is not an environment that I think a lot of teens want to promote. And I don't think that, I mean, I've talked about it before where I have hope. I work with a lot of boys and they talk about, you know, I don't want somebody like this to be the model that I build myself after. I don't want to believe that bullying is the way, that being sexist is the, is okay, that it's okay to treat women this way. I don't like it. And often 
they say that because I see my sister being treated a certain way or a friend of mine is being treated that way. And that does give me hope. At the same time, we now have somebody who is in the highest position and got there through these methods that we teach kids are not the right way to do things. So I think that's a big struggle a lot of people are wrestling with is how do you teach kids that this behavior is not okay when they see that this is the behavior that has gotten this person to that place? That's a, a going to be a very big question that I think a lot of parents are, are struggling with this morning, parents and teachers. Um, and we're not the only ones who've received text and requests. And I think it's important, you know, uh, to really have perspective to share with uh, younger people. There have been uh, many elections and many processes uh, where uh, people have succeeded through using methods that, uh, you know, maybe have employed all kinds of techniques. In terms of this recent election, I think uh, one of the hard things, or several hard things about it, but one is that um, watching uh, Hillary Clinton uh, fail in her election, her attempt to be president, uh, has been very difficult. And I think seeing how much effort she put in and how far she really went uh, in that race um, that's important to hold on to for the girls that we work with. We have never seen a woman get this far. And uh, it, she's a role model really for uh, all women in this country that she could do this and achieve this, whether or not you voted for her. And uh, I think about, uh, you know, she chose to have her election, uh, post-election uh, gathering slash party at the Javits Center in New York, which has a glass ceiling. And uh, it's important, I think, to keep in mind that that glass ceiling is still there for women and that women, partly because of sexualization, you know, exist next to men, but there's really different things that hold them back. And uh, this is part of that. And I think this election, sexualization is only one thing and that held uh, Hillary Clinton back. But it's a, it's a very important thing for our girls to notice. Um, how do you think we should work with our boys around this situation? I mean, I think that's what I struggle with, is that you promote the same message. And yet, I think you learn to step back and say, okay, how did this man get here? How did this happen? What drives this kind of thing? And what can we do different? And I think a lot of it is anger, it's resentment, it's hate. And we teach boys that that is not the way to do things. And that you keep, I don't know, <laughs> um, I think you just keep moving forward and you keep trying to promote a different message. And you talk about the reasons why this isn't okay. And I think you talk about, like we're doing, how sexualization plays into why women would vote for a man like Trump. And I think that is important to consider too, that it wasn't just this men versus women thing, but really how it affects everybody in the country and how it affects people's decision-making. And you educate. Yeah. I think you bring up the, the women in our recent election who voted for Trump, and they were referred to really through the evening as the votes were coming in. Many were from suburban areas, and and, and many were educated, and I think uh, that plays a role. Uh, um, I think it brings up that gender is not the only factor mm -hmm. in our elections, and uh, finances and 
where people reside, whether in rural areas or urban, play a role. How people feel listened to plays a role. But you uh, realize that um, many of the women who voted uh, for Trump also listened to those very negative comments that he had made about women and just the way he treated women throughout the campaign. Um, that is uh, extremely difficult. And that has to, you know, we have to struggle to explain that and to understand that and not to minimize that. You know, he has, he has won uh, the election. And uh, as Americans, we support him strongly in his effort uh, to be president. Um, it's a very important role for our country. But um, we really have to question these perspectives, and uh, we have to continue to raise concerns about this area. I think, you know, I'm thinking more about it because it's so soon after. I'm not sure that I'm super coherent or cohesive about these things. I'm still working through my grief and trying to process everything. But I do think one thing that I would say to girls and boys, men and women, you don't let anybody rob you of your voice. And you bring up what I think girls and women have felt most robbed of is that they have not had a voice. Uh, I go back to the work of uh, Carol Gilligan, you know, which was, began probably three decades ago at uh, Harvard and, uh, you know, and just listening and talking with her briefly around various presentations, just how important it is for girls to have a voice in America. And uh, I think one thing the recent election did, uh, Hillary's uh, race really gave girls and women that voice. And uh, it's so important to hold on to that. You know, and that's where I would say we have to have courage and strength and realize that that was a great gift that she gave us through her energy to push forward and do this. And other women and girls will follow her. And uh, eventually uh, that glass ceiling will be broken. You know? Yeah. You know, but it's hard to feel that this morning. As you said, uh, you know, we're still dealing with the loss of this and how will we really make this work? you know, as a country and as people who care so much about our country. And I think that's the thing is you don't give up, but you do step back and you say, okay, well, this happened. Why did it happen? How did it happen? What can we do to prevent something like this from happening again? How do we use our voices to make America better, which is what I think everybody wants to do, but everybody has different ideas about it. How do we come together and talk about what that actually looks like? And how do we promote those ideas? I think what's also interesting about our, our recent election is that uh, many of the people who voted for Trump did not feel that they had a voice either. Exactly. And uh, that Trump gave voice uh, to their frustration and their anger. And uh, I think there, there's an area where women who have long struggled to have their voice can understand, really, uh, in some ways, what uh, these men and other men and women are, are feeling. Um, because I think lacking a voice, you know, in any format really leads to many different uh, feelings. Um, this brings us back to our Halloween costumes and, uh, you know, from Halloween costumes that over-sexualize girls and take away their voice 
really to later points in life where they don't feel that they have a voice. And I think one of the biggest frustrations about sexualization of girls is that they then begin to sexualize themselves as they grow up and become older. And many teenagers and young women in their 20s are very sexualized and it's coming internally, you know, because that's the role they've learned. That's kind of the pathway to success in a culture that sexualizes women. And I think it's a very helpless feeling to feel that you don't have a voice, that what you say doesn't matter. And so you look for ways to get your voice heard. I think what I have a hard time internalizing is what does it have to take? How much effort would it have to take to how helpless would you have to feel about your situation to give your vote to somebody who could say such horrible things about women? How challenging of a situation would you have to be in to feel like that was the person who could represent your voice? And that I think that is where I get stuck. That's where I struggle is I can understand what it feels like to not have a voice. I can understand how frustrating that is. But how can you hear somebody say something so hurtful to so many people and be able to write that off as that's just normal. That's how it is. That's what we have to deal with and not believe that you need to fight and you need to change and you need to band together and you need to find a different way. I don't have all the answers to that question, Jennifer, but I do know that when you live in a culture that normalizes and in the U.S., it is normalized. Sexualization of women and girls is normalized. Then you may not even see it. Yeah. You may not even feel it. You may not even know that you don't have the power um, that you would have in a different type of culture. Um, there are more gender cult neutral cultures in the world. Uh, one is certainly uh, the Netherlands, and uh, they have a culture that has, uh, you know, much more equality with respect to men and women. Um, so I think um, there are places like that that we can really look to. But I think for many women in America, maybe all women, you know, normalization does occur of these gender issues. And it, it is hard to break th through it and to really feel your voice and feel the anger and be able to address it, you know, in an appropriate and respectful manner. Um, these are not easy things, you know. Well, moving through this, um, I, I do want to add, we've gone through uh, sexualization of girls, and, and one of the major critiques of the American Psychological Association's uh, definition is around uh, girls and desire. And uh, it's important to say that desire, girls' desire needs to be part of the equation. So you want to uh, help girls to not be so sexualized, but at the same time to be able to find their own sexual voice and uh, how you help girls to do that. It, a lot of it has to do with how we raise our girls and uh, we how we regard their sexual activity during adolescence, how we promote their sexual development around their physical bodies and orgasm, all of these things. So how do we give girls 
back their sexuality. And I think both feminists and uh, the uh, individuals who worked on the American Psychological Association Task Force were trying to do that. But there's really a question about how do we go about doing that? Yeah, definitely. And I think along those lines is that you teach kids that being sexy isn't just about an outside thing. It's not just about an appearance and how you're perceived, but that there's a really a strong internal component as well, that it's about how you feel and feeling good and what makes you feel sexy and emphasis on the feeling part, right? And that that can then be a source of power and strength and self-esteem, rather than having it be dependent on somebody else and their perception of you. Exactly. And uh, it brings us uh, back to uh, the, you know, both the emotional and the physical parts of it. And our girls need to be encouraged, you know, to understand their own sexuality, you know, to really uh, work with orgasm and different aspects of their development so that they really begin to feel from the inside what it feels like to be sexually powerful and strong and that they know their voice. They're really their sexual voice. And we look at studies that adult women, you know, maybe 50% have never reported having sexual orgasm. Right. We re really, again, are then back where we started with all of this. How does sexualization, you know, of our girls in Halloween costumes affect so many aspects really of their development? So, um, beginning to move along here, um, again, this is, a, you know, I apologize to our listeners. This is a, is a hard day, a hard day to really keep addressing this topic, but there's so much connected to it. And I think it's so important that we really talk about the sexualization of girls and women, uh, and how it affects everyone really within our culture. I think we've addressed a lot of important things, really what the definition of sexualization is, how it's showing up in a couple of very important areas, our national holidays and functions, Halloween and our election day, um, maybe some about what can be done about it and that it's an ongoing struggle to really fight this subject and to deal with the negative aspects of it. And then the importance, I think, of all of us in this country, boys, girls, men, women, having voices, and we need to have our voice heard, and we need to work together to make that happen. I think one thing I might add is we need to listen to the voices of others to learn to listen. And uh, I think the fathers who've learned to listen to their daughters during this election and maybe those of us throughout the country who are really listening to the voices of others. That is a really, really important part of this whole subject. And it's really listening to understand, not listening to just, you know, say that you're listening, which is something I see a lot of people do. Oh, well, I heard what they said, but then I'm going to disregard it. It's really how do we build bridges? How do we try to understand where somebody is coming from if they have a different opinion than us, a different idea than us. And I think that is a big part of what we do here is we're talking, we're trying to share our perspective, share what we see, and we're trying to explore and trying to understand what is going on in the bigger picture. Right. And I, I think for uh, parents out there and for uh, 
teenagers, I think, having conversations together, you know, across age groups and other things, across genders, especially across genders at this time. Oh, absolutely. It's very, very important to listen to, and as you say, Jennifer, to try to truly understand where the other person is coming from. So thank you again for uh, doing this podcast on this not-so-easy day. And thank you. This episode of Let's Talk About Sex with Lynn and Jen is not intended as a substitute for seeing your own mental health provider. We are here to initiate conversations about sex. Let's keep the conversations going. You can find us on Twitter at TalkingSexPod or email us at TalkingSexPodcasts at gmail.com. We also want to give special thanks to Nathan Diffie for our podcast cover art and our wonderful editor, Julia W.D. Harrison. Lynn Ponton and I, Jennifer Wong, are the executive producers.